Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This winter season, storytellers brought up in the Middle East and Africa. I move the dial and I get this French channel and I start listening and who was singing was Ray Charles. And I said, oh, I love this. I want to do something like that. Stories on the oud and strange experiences with food. When you come to America as an immigrant, it's not like you get this booklet on America and Americans. And so there were just so many things that left us completely befuddled, you know, like figuring out what's in all the boxes and cans in the grocery stores, because so many of them have a picture of a smiling person on them. And you know that's not in there. And one man's journey to bridge an old storytelling tradition with hip hop. It's not like the way it was before. So like, as you said, we are the 21st century griots. Memories and music from Senegal, Iran, and Morocco on Living on Earth's Holiday Storytelling Show. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Our music is different this week because we're taking a break from our usual coverage of environmental news to bring you our annual holiday special featuring storytellers. This year, we hear from American artists who share a Muslim heritage. Born in Morocco, Iran, and Senegal, they bring us tales of radio transformations, immigrations, and fast food temptations. Yashir, sadly, is a musician, swimming instructor, and the imam of a mosque in Oakland, California. Yasir, welcome to Living on Earth. Hi. Firouze Dumas is an Iranian-American writer of very funny books. Hello, Firouze. Thank you. And also I have with me two musicians and storytellers originally from Senegal in West Africa, Mamadou and Sana and Jai of the musical group Gokbi System. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Yasir Shadley, I'd like to start with you. Please, tell us about the storytelling tradition where you're from in Morocco. Well, I grew up in Casablanca. There is no Humphrey Bogart there. It's just uh, a city near the ocean. Storytellers are in the street near the market, and they sit, and you can choose which one you want to sit with. And they usually are saying stories with instruments. And uh, if they make you forget you're sitting on a rock, then they are good storytellers. Now, Yasir, I understand you have an oud with you. Yes, there is me and my oud. Can you hear it? Yeah. It's like the guitar for Europeans. It's the oud, is for Middle Eastern people in general. We call it oud, since you don't have ain in the alphabet. They change that ain into O-U-D, they say oud. And they change it from oud to lut, and then you have a lut. Ah, so, Yasir, do you have a, a, a story you'd like to tell using your oud? Well, yes. I just want to see what can, what can up. Uh, Once a time, there was people concentrating on a hole. A hole that was a problem for the village 
because every time somebody walk and they fall there, they get hurt. But the people, they didn't want to get rid of that hole. They like it. But they made a gathering to see what should they do to save people from falling. And one guy said, let's put a nurse, a registered nurse in the hall. And if somebody falls, then the registered nurse will take care of him. Another one said, that's bad idea. Why don't we put an emergency car, an ambulance, near the hall? If somebody falls, we'll take them to the hospital. And then one guy come from the back, and he said, all of these ideas are bad. Why don't we build a hospital near the hall? And another one said, No, that idea is bad. We already have a hospital. Why don't we fill this hall with concrete? And then we'll make a hole right near the hospital. So we still have a hole. <laughs> so that's the concentration of, of having a hole the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like the planet trying to deal with the question of climate change. <laughs> My idea was the people who insist and persist on an idea because they like the hole so much they don't want to get rid of it because they, they have a, this bad habit of always wanting to have that hole. So, Yasir Shadley, tell me, when did you first fall in love with music? Uh, I knew I was going to be a musician when I... Uh, it was a hot day and I was in the Bedouin land of my grandfather and it was very hot at noon Everybody was sleeping, the dogs are sleeping, donkeys are sleeping, everybody is sitting and finding a shade. And I was by myself awake. I didn't know what to do, so I started playing with the radio. Uh, I know my grandfather and grandma, they never move the dial. They keep it always on the Arabic channel. But I move the dial and I get this French channel. And I start listening, and who was singing was Ray Charles. I didn't understand English or anything, I was very young, but he was singing Georgia. Georgia, Georgia. And that touched my heart. I started crying, tears coming. And I said, oh, I love this. I want to do something like that. Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind So, let me hear a little bit of Georgia. I mean, Georgia on the Oud? Yes, Georgia on the Oud. <laughs> Georgia with Yasir, Georgia. <laughs> I never played Georgia on the Oud, but I can play something similar to Georgia. Georgia. 
القلب فين فين انت فين فين شهور معك وسنين يا حبيب القلب فين فين انت فين فين شهور معك وسنين كويتيني ياه وبكات العين Thank you, Yasir. And uh, what do the words mean in English? I was something similar to Georgia in my mind. This one, it says, Ya Habib al-Qalb fin, oh, beloved of my heart, where are you? Where are you all these months and all these years? I, never, I didn't see you. So let, let me ask you, uh, Sanana, you're holding an, an, an instrument that's not too dissimilar from the oud. Mm. First of all, what is, what is your instrument called, this one that looks like a banjo? Yeah, this instrument is called a counting. It comes from uh, the Jola people, which is my tribe. And uh, this instrument is a very old instrument that has been created to bring peace, love, and justice. I discovered this instrument when I was very, very young. My grandfather was playing this instrument. And uh, as soon as I saw the instrument, I just fell in love with it. And I just right away wanted to learn. It's, yeah. it's the radio, uh, so you can't see that Sana's playing something that looks very much like a banjo, but kind of the bottom of it's on steroids. Wow, this is, a, <laughs> <laughs> this is the great-grandfather of the banjo. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, this instrument is the first banjo. So during the slavery time, you know, uh, those people were captured, and then some of them, they brought some instrument with them, and, uh, you know, they were entertaining whoever captured them. That's why this uh, transformation came from with the banjo. So, Mama, do you play this yourself? No. No? <laughs> yeah, I, I tried, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, Firuze, what did you bring today to play? Well, actually, nothing. I didn't realize we were supposed to bring anything. And I actually have no musical talent, so I wouldn't have been able to bring anything anyways. But I can hum. Good ratings, though. No humming. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to hear uh, from the... Uh, uh, Kunting later, but uh, Firuze, you were born in Iran, but uh, you moved uh, to California with your family when you were about seven, and uh, you ended up writing about your experiences coming from the Persian culture and growing up in America in two very popular books. One is called Funny in Farsi, and the other is called Laughing Without an Accent. And, uh, you know, I have to say, when I think of Iran, the first thing that comes to mind is not funny. I mean, how did you become a, an Iranian-American humorist? Well, I do have to admit, I think politicians have definitely set the humor bar very low, and uh, which makes my job that much easier because I just have to walk in a room and say hello and people say, wow, she is funny. So uh, how I became a humorist was I actually have a father who is very, very funny. So when I became a mother and I started writing my stories for my children, they ended up being funny, but I had absolutely no intention of them being funny. So once I realized that the stories were funny, I decided to just take it one step further and try to get them published and to show the humorous side of an Iranian family, which you never see anywhere. 
Now, I imagine coming to America as an immigrant, there's so many crazy, strange things. For example, I think you wrote about uh, trying to figure out a garage sale. Yeah. It's not like you get this booklet on America and Americans. There were just so many things that left us completely befuddled, you know, like grasshopper pie. You know, there, there was no one to ask and like a garage sale, you know, of course, what, you know, what exactly is a garage sale or, uh, you know, figuring out what's in all the boxes and cans in the grocery stores, for instance, because so many of them have a picture of a smiling person on them. And, you know, that's not in there. So it was definitely the little things that, that, that got us. So how did the grasshopper pie get you? <laughs> well, we had when we first came to America in 1972. Americans were so kind to us and people were always coming and giving us baked goods. And I just remember one time we had this uh, mom from my school who came to our house and she told us that this was a tradition and she gave us this grasshopper pie and she didn't explain what it was. And so we took it and then we did what we always did, which is we looked it up in the dictionary and we just looked up grasshopper and we looked up pie and we just threw it away, <laughs> which I'm very sorry for because now I, I've since had grasshopper pie and I think it's very good. And there are no grasshoppers in grasshopper pie. But, uh, you know, it was green and had brown flecks on it. So uh, Nobody told you it had sugar and what else? <laughs> it's like chocolate and mint. Yeah, there you go. But uh, yeah, you know, desserts named after insects, not a good idea. We'll be right back with Firuze's story of swimming, wise, and vending machines. It's storytelling time right here on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and you're listening to our winter season storytelling special. This year, we feature American storytellers from the Middle East and Africa. We'll hear the sounds of the evolving Senegalese tradition of griots in just a little bit, but first we turn back to Firouze Dumas, a writer who moved to the United States from Iran when she was a child. Firouze, let's pick up where we left off talking about one of my favorite subjects, food. I understand you have a story about what happened when you and your family started eating like Americans? Exactly. So when I lived in Iran, my mom, my mother and I used to go to the markets. And they were open-air markets, very similar to farmer's markets in America. And it was all very straightforward. Everything was just out there. Nothing was in boxes and cans. And if you wanted to buy fish, it was just right there on a pile of fish. So we used to go and we'd buy ingredients. We'd come back and my mother spent every single day of her life cooking. She would start making lunch, which was for us the main meal of the day in the morning. And so it would always start with onions being fried. And then from there, it would be all the herbs, uh, you know, the parsley and the, and the scallion and the cilantro being cleaned and chopped and fried and then the meats. And so there was this symphony of smells that used to always come out of our kitchen. And by the time it was lunchtime, our house was just filled with these wonderful smells. And my father would come home from work and we'd all have lunch together. When we moved to America, we all of a sudden discovered that there were all these foods here that were already prepared. So in Iran, if you opened our pantry or our refrigerator, all you found was basically raw rice or lentils. Or in our refrigerator, there would be like raw meat and limes. And in America, I mean, we used to go to the grocery store and we would just buy these boxes and cans, not quite sure what's in them. And try them. And, you know, a lot of times people go to other countries and they discover the new culture through museums. Well, we were not cultivated people, so we just ate our way through America. We used to go to Baskin Robbins, and we couldn't believe there was 31 flavors. And we tried every single one. I mean, back home, we were used to having either vanilla chocolate or Persian ice cream, which is made with rose water and saffron and 
cardamom and it's very good but i mean all of a sudden we're here and we're having like blueberry cheesecake and uh you know pumpkin pie and ice cream and our favorite american food was kentucky fried chicken and we used to go there three times a week and my dad would come home with you know two buckets and we'd basically fight for all the chicken skin at the bottom and my god we ate and we ate and we ate needless to say by the time i was in third grade and mind you, I'd come here in second grade, so it was one year later. There was a lot more of me than when we initially come to this country. I bet. We used to have relatives that come, would come and visit us. And after a while, you know, they, they'd say, my goodness, you know, Firuze has just exploded. There's about three times more of her than there used to be. So finally, my parents decided that I needed to lose weight. The idea that they came up with was this. At the YMCA... Every day from 3 to 4 was free swim hour, which meant that you could just go to the pool and do laps. The only problem was I didn't know how to swim. So my parents decided that I would go to the swimming pool for one hour and I would hold my hands to the side and just kick for an hour. Now, I was eight years old and anybody can tell you that this is a really bad idea. But my parents, God bless them, they thought that this would really cure me of all this extra weight. So every day my father would take me to the YMCA. And I, of course, was very angry about this whole plan of theirs for, to go to the YMCA five days a week. So I would just sit in that pool. And when it was about 10 to 4, I would make sure that I would go into the pool just enough so I would be wet up to my neck. And then I would get out and my dad would pick me up and I'd be, of course, all wet. And, and so he'd say, oh, how, how was the kicking today? And I'd say, oh, I'm so exhausted. And he was so happy for me. And, and every day he'd say, wow, you know, I can already tell you look so good and you're getting stronger. And God bless him. He was so happy for me and so excited. I felt horrible that I was lying to him every day. But I didn't know what to do because I hated this whole kicking idea. So one day when my father dropped me off at the YMCA, I was in the locker room and I noticed that there were people coming from around the corner and they were all eating candy. So I went and I noticed that there was this huge box with glass and there was all these candy bars in it and people were putting in coins and candy bars were coming out. And so this was my first introduction to the world of vending machines. So from that day on, I would go to my mother's coin purse after school and I would steal a dime and a nickel every single day. And I would go to the YMCA, I would go into their gym, and I would put a dime and a nickel in the vending machine and buy a Babe Ruth bar. And then I would sit there and I would eat it at my, at my leisure, and then I would go in the pool, just make sure I was wet enough to be convincing to my father. And then when my dad would pick me up, he would once again go into his speech of, wow, you look stronger, you look so good, I'm so proud of you. And of course, I felt even more guilty. So about two months of this goes by, and lo and behold... My parents noticed that my clothes are actually getting tighter. And by then, I was already wearing Sears size 14 Pretty Plus. They said, well, wow, how could this be happening? And my, my father said, maybe it's muscle. You know, muscles are, are bigger than... <laughs> so they, they gave up on the YMCA kicking idea. And then at that point, they actually took me to a weight doctor. But, you know, I never told them the truth about this until literally about 30 years later when I one day said to my father, I said, you know, when you used to send me to the Y to kick for an hour? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I have to admit, I, I don't think I even kicked once. And he was so surprised. He, he, he said, I, I can't believe you lied to me. And I said, yeah, dad, I, I did. And, you know, God bless him. I, I felt bad all over again. <laughs> uh, yes. America, 
food in a box, <laughs> in a can, and a machine, huh? I, I think in the airports they should have a sign that says, you know, welcome to America, switch to elastic waistbands. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to add, I do have a small waistline now. This is radio, but if people are visualizing what I look like. <laughs> hey, I still need my elastic waistband. Firoze Dumas on the humorous side of growing up Iranian-American. This is Living on Earth's winter holiday season storytelling special. And let's hear now from Gokbi System, the musical group pioneered by Mamadou and Sana Ndai. Now, Mamadou, you guys play a mixture of hip-hop with the music of Senegal's griots, and as I understand it, griots are the keepers of West African oral tradition. Uh, tell me more about it. What exactly is a griot? A griot is a storyteller. They used to follow the kings and the queens and got like the whole story of their lifetime. That's the reason why we didn't lose our whole story, because the stories was transmitted from generation to generation. You know, each generation had a griot that was taking care of knowing exactly what was going on, because those griots was like were like they had a place that they call like La Place de Village. They call it the the tree of talk. The talking tree. Yeah, the talk like everybody will come there and the king will come and like transmit his message and stuff so everybody knows what's going on. So griots in our like in our uh, culture are really important. Even though we didn't write before, those story was transmitted from from generation. So there's a writer that used to say that the griots are the the bag of words. Without them, story will be lost forever. Now, you come from a griot family. And, yeah. And this is something you have to be born into? Yeah, basically, like, you're born in a griot family, you know, so you basically grow up in the music environment. You see your sisters dancing, your father's, like, playing drums, your mom is, like, telling stories and stuff. So you're kind of, like, born in that and grow up in it. So you must know a lot of stories, then. I know mm-hmm. some, you know. I will say that we are, like, as you say, we are the 21st century griots, you know, which means like, mm-hmm. uh, it's not like the way it was before, how people were like really like concentrating on that and respecting the whole griot tradition. Because in the past, griot people didn't have to work, you know, they don't go to school. So the village itself, like people in the village, they would take care of them, you know, provide them with food, money, clothing and stuff. So you're a modern griot though. Yes. So. I guess you found a way, I understand you found a way to balance the old and the new, and it's resulted in your musical group, the uh, Gokbi System, yep. which is what? Part traditional Senegalese griot music and part hip-hop, huh? Yep. <laughs> it's called Ancient Meets Urban. Ah. Yeah. So tell us, tell us your story of how you got to be where you are now. Yeah. I was born in Dakar, Senegal, West Africa. And I went to the village. 
visit my uncles and his four wives. I stayed with one of them, who was a big deal in the griot community. And she and for four friends, they would go to village and village, town to town, telling stories, singing, dancing for money, material, and something to support the family. Those days was good. There's always something going on. From dancing, singing, telling stories. I didn't want to go back to the city. And I had to stay there for seven years. But after why? After I had to go back to the, to the city to put it high school. Life was tough there. Because I'm from in a neighborhood called Ginarai. Mean other side of the track. And when you say other side of the track, you can have an idea of the life we were talking about. Poverty. No clean water. My parents had to struggle every day to bring something on the table. So it was really tough. And in the same period, my father was laid over in his job. So it was really, really tough. And I had to live with eight brothers and sisters. And at the same time, one day in the 90s, I discovered hip-hop. I was just listening to the radio, and I heard it like that. I was so touched, so blown away by the message itself because it was talking about the life we were living at that time. The same stories that I was going through. But mostly, the connection that hip-hop had with Tasu, which is like the way that Grio people was communicating to each other. Something like this. Sepit mana pasal follow man man fumu nak tinggalam, mabeganak gadeganak man mai rap dekalam, dah degenak fumu dugunak mudilaiye la beganak, dah seketam maketam amatul, jalubam bekam dohatul, wala dohatul dohatul, lima man cirap lima bagi cirap fat, lini fat de fat de fat, lini fat, fajar mada bakhloko, fajar mada bakhloko, banyak makobar takhloko, 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 tiap pifi taflako, taflako, taflako. Just like that. So it was a big connection between griot people and rappers. So that's why I think we call ourselves the 21st century griot. And at that time, I wanted to drop out of school because knowing like all the things that I was going through in my life. So from there, I had to go to the open market, buy women's clothes had to prepare them, iron it, and sell it back. And I had another job on making drums and stuff. That job was a hard one, because you had to cut the tree in the forest, bring it in the city, and dig a hole in it so you can have the sound of the drum. And after a while, just, you know, rehearsing, 
bring stuff with my friend to develop that musical style that I always wanted to be. Because since I was living in the city, though, to the village, I always had to feel like, wow, I want to do this and share my stories with the rest of the world. And when we start like doing our stuff, we wanted to have our own music, our own sound. And the only way we could get that is to bring our, our traditional instrument in it. Because we understood that hip-hop is about reality, like what you're living in. And the only way to show that was to bring our own touch in it. So we meet Sana, playing this beautiful instrument called a counting. And after we worked for a little bit, we had to present it to our, to our friends. They were so disappointed of us. It was like, wow, you guys think that you can make it with this old instrument and these drums? I don't think so. But we, we didn't say anything. We decided to keep doing what we do because we believe in that. We believe that we could do something special with it. And after four years of working, we recorded a song called Sibore. Hey, hey, hey! Which means, like, let's go back to the roots. time we meet a producer called Tony Vaca. He's from the U.S. And we present in our city, we fall in love with it. Six months after that, we had our first invitation in the U.S. And a lot of people wanted us to just come here and just stay, do something. Because as they always think, we will never make it with the music business. But we stick to our story and keep doing what we do. And we do that too, went back home and get invited again and again so many times. So this day we decide to leave part-time here, part-time in Senegal, and it does work for us. And we doing our thing, touring the world, and thank God we stick to our story. And that's Mamadou Njaye's story of how a modern griot came from Dakar, Senegal to Massachusetts, USA. Mamadou and Sana Njaye, who from the musical group Gokbi System. Yep. Any comments from uh, you other storytellers who are online here? Firouze? Well, I just want to say I, I love the fact that there's so much music involved uh, with the storytelling. I, had I known, I would have brought maybe like the theme song to a Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial or something, something to. <laughs> but it's I'm enjoying this. I, I love hearing this. Yasir? Yes, I felt like I wanted to play the oud with that instrument to keep them company. I wanted to take the play the bass of my oud because that uh, has a high notes. I wanted to play lower notes and, and join them. They were so in a roll. That was wonderful. Let's give this a try. Sana, you want to lay down the line that you were playing? And uh, Yasir, see what you can do with this. Go ahead, Sana.
be back in a moment for stories of why from Morocco, Iran, and Senegal. Keep listening to our storytelling special right here on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This week on our holiday special, there's no environmental news, just stories. Our guests today are storytellers who came from the Middle East and Africa and who now live in America. They speak a variety of languages and share French as well as English. And we'll turn now to Yasir Shadley for another story. Yasir, I understand this is a very personal story about seeking the answer to a question planted inside of you back in your childhood in Morocco. Uh, in my childhood, the division between men and women was uh, very clear. Women, they get with each other. Men are with each other. And the houses are ruled by women. And around mid-afternoon, all the ladies, they get together to have their cafe latte and mint tea and cookies. And they make themselves and they gather together like that. And uh, when the ladies came to my mother's house... Uh, my mother wants to show the ladies something funny so they can laugh. And she said, Yasir, where do you come from? And I just respond proudly, I come from my father. And where, is, where did your sister, Najia, where she come from? I say, she comes from you. And then everybody laughs, and I don't know why they were laughing. I was so serious about it. Because I, I knew I was a, going to be a man, I don't know how, and I knew my sister was like my mother. Years passed like that, and my mother gave birth to my brother. And I said, oh, you, you're the one who gave birth to me then. And then I asked her, why don't you ask me first, do you want to come to this world? Yes or no, then leave the choice to me, then I can choose to come here or not to come. And I was telling my mother, if you ask me, do you want to come here, yes or no, I probably will be happier to say, no, I don't want to come here. It was, I had this question, and the nagging question, she said, not me, so ask Allah. I'm not, uh, you, you came through me, but I didn't. Allah brought you here. And so that changed my question. Now I am focusing on why Allah brought me here. That question pops up, and I was just maybe eight, nine. So I asked people, and they think I was crazy to ask such questions, so I kept it with me. So I used to go to the country to help my grandfather in his farm. And my job there was to trim the hoofs of the donkeys when they are young because their hoofs keep them growing and growing if you don't trim them. And then also used to ride them bareback so they can get used to carrying people. Of course, the teenager donkeys, they never like to have somebody on top of them. So they, they rebel and we have this fight between each other, and I, I was a teenager, the donkey is a teenager also. And then at the end, at the end, we become one, we become friends and stuff like that. And then I took my little donkey all the way down where there is nobody, and I look around, I can see only the horizon all over the place. I said, okay, now I'm going to ask this question. 
to Allah. And then I get down from my donkey and I spoke loud. I said, why did you bring me here? Like that. And then I could hear the answer, very gentle, saying to me, just to witness. That's all. That's very simple answer. But I didn't like that answer. It was too short and didn't have any point. I wanted to ask if if I am here for a real purpose doing something, but to witness, what is that? Then I kept that idea or that answer in me, and then I went back to Casablanca, and near Casablanca we have an ocean that has nice waves, and the water is warm and clear, so clean. And I used to go there to do body surfing, just surf with the waves, and I enjoyed doing that, and I enjoyed teaching that to all my my neighbors, all the kids. I swim with the Moroccan national team. So I was able to swim fast enough to catch the wave and then, and then ride with the, with the wave. It was such an enjoyable thing. And then one day I went there, the ocean was flat like a rug. There was no waves. I, said, I walked all the way, one hour walking to the beach, and there is no waves. What should I do? So I decided I'm going to lay on my back and feel those little very tiny waves going under my back and enjoy that. So I floated on my back and feel the water and listen to the vibration of the water sounds and and I'm enjoying that position like that with my arms way open, my legs in a V so I can float and look at the sky and I close my eyes. While I was doing that, I felt my body growing out of dimension rising and rising like yeast in a bread, growing, growing, and I couldn't stop my body from growing. It was growing, growing, growing until it became as big as the whole Atlantic Ocean. And I couldn't bring myself back from that. And I felt that the ocean and me were one. And then I realized the unity of everything. There is something that is similar with me and everything else, even the ocean. At that time, those verses I was hearing made sense to me. When it says, Qul ahad, Say everything is one. Then I said, ah, now I understand. And to witness means to look. This ocean is a treasure. Everything we see is treasure. And people are treasures also. And that's what opened for me the, the way toward the Sufism. That's the road for it. And that's my story. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Yasir Shadley. Now, we're speaking with, the, with Yasir Shadli. He's an imam, a musician, a storyteller from Berkeley, California. And also on the line is Firuze Duma. She's an Iranian-American writer of very funny books. And Firuze, when, when you heard this story about him not wanting to come here and trying to figure out why it is that we're put on earth, what did you think of? Well, as a writer, I I have a very strong sense of destiny because... Uh, when I go and I speak to people about what I do, I mean, I, I mainly try to spread the idea of shared humanity through humor. And wh- wherever I go, I travel quite a bit in the United States. I always feel like I was meant to be there saying what it is that I'm saying. Now, do I think that everybody asks themselves, why am I here? No. In fact, I wish more people asked themselves that question because I think there are a lot of people living their lives without any introspection. Mamadou, what about this notion of why are we here? Yeah, I think uh, it's a question that everybody asks himself. Like they say, you know, you live, you grow, you learn, and you know. That's why he feels the unity. We not coming in the same part of the world. 
Even like we're coming in different parts of the world, we're still united by something. We share French together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> we can speak French to each other. Uh-huh. That's, the, that's the benefit for, for being colonized by the French. We have this language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Definitivement. <laughs> and uh, Firouze, you've gone French through uh, the altar, I guess. Well, my husband is French, but unfortunately he's not related to Alexandre Dumas. Oh. That would have been a great marketing hook for me, but no, alas, <laughs> no relation. Let me ask you, uh, Firouze, uh, I imagine getting used to the holidays here in America, it might have been, well, somewhat confusing for uh, an Iranian family uh, new to the U.S. And uh, you have a story uh, celebrating the humor in that confusion as Persian culture meets American culture. Could you tell us that uh, right now? Okay, so when we came to America in 1972, holidays uh, like Halloween, for instance, weren't what they are today. It was much more low-key. And we actually came to America, I believe it was late September. So when our first Halloween rolled around, we had no idea what it was. And I was in second grade, and I remember one morning, Heather Hensley's mom showed up, and she had a costume for me, because lo and behold, there was a Halloween parade that day at school, and she had figured out that I was going to be the only kid without a costume. So next thing I know, she put this handkerchief around my head, she put a bunch of bracelets on my wrist, she gave me the sort of flowing outfit, and she said, you're a gypsy, which I realize now is politically incorrect, but... At the time, it was it was a very, very kind thing that she, she did for me because I would have been horrified to have been the only kid without a costume. So anyways, I marched around the basketball court with all the other kids, and I just assumed that was the extent of Halloween. So that night, we're, we're in our home, and somebody knocked on our door. And up to that time, nobody had ever visited us in the evening, and so we all answered the door, and it was a bunch of kids in costumes, and they all said something, and we didn't quite understand what they said. So we just kind of stood there, um, and they said it again. And so uh, then one of the kids said something about wanting candy, and we were very confused, and we didn't have any candy in the house, and we said, you know, we're sorry, and we shut the door. And a few minutes later, again, somebody knocks on the door. We open it. It's, you know, a different group of kids dressed up as ghosts and hobos. And again, they, they said that phrase that we couldn't catch, and uh, they said they wanted candy. And so... At this point, we said, well, hold on. Uh, we don't have candy, but we have something else. Now, Iranians, we always have fruit in our house. So we went and we got the bowl of fruit that we had in the living room. And so we started giving out apples and oranges and bananas. And after a while, we actually ran out of, all the, of the fruit. So my mother went to the fridge. And one thing that we Iranians always have in our house, and I can say that right now in my fridge, I have two pounds of this, is pickling cucumbers. So we just started handing out pickling cucumbers, and then we ran out of those. And so then we, we turned our porch light off, and, and, you know, when kids knocked, we just didn't even answer it. But it wasn't until years later when I thought about that, and I thought, you know, those kids who came to our house that night must have thought we were the worst house on the block. I mean, who would give out pickling cucumbers and apples and oranges and bananas? So I just want to apologize to any kids who actually trick-or-treated in 1972 at our house because nobody had told us that we had to buy candy. But having said that, I think having the habits that I had developed in this country, I think even if my mother had bought candy, I probably would have eaten it before Halloween. So, <laughs> yeah, Firuze, how did you deal with this, uh, with this waistline, ultimately? <laughs> well, ultimately, I grew up, and uh, I stopped eating junk food, and, and I eat the way I used to in Iran. Ah. Maybe that maybe that should try that. Maybe that would help. Right. <laughs>
I understand now you just uh, moved to Southern California from the Bay Area, and I imagine it's not so hard to find Persian food around L.A., huh? Are you kidding? It's hard to find American food down here now. Uh Uh-huh. There's great ethnic food down here. Some questionable driving skills, though, and I have to say, uh, but half of those are my relatives, okay? so Now, as I understand it, there's a Persian specialty store there? It's a, it, there's a, well, there's actually several Persian markets, but there's one near my house, and every single morning, my French husband goes to buy sangak, which is this large flatbread. He, my husband grew up, ironically, having fresh baguettes in Paris, and now it is just, you know, two sangaks later, he is completely converted. Ah, I want to try one. I've never had one. I'll FedEx you one if you want. Oh, okay. Thank you. And what about those uh, Persian pastries? Where do you get those? There is there is a store here, which is called Asal, which means honey. It, it's Asal, so it's A-S-S-A-L, So, which I probably would not have named it that if that were my store, because I think anytime you have ass in a name, it's not good. But, it, hey, it's crowded all the time, so that has not kept the customers away. Okay, quick roundtable. We're just about out of time here. Um, I'm going to start with you, um, uh, Yasir. Why tell stories? Oh, that has many, many answers in this one. Stories could be to shorten the road of somebody traveling in this journey. If they are in a dark tunnel, you can shorten the tunnel by giving them a story to get them out from that uh, ego tunnel. And some stories are good for taking depression out from the heart. You know sometimes when somebody is sick and you give them only water and you tell them this is, this is some kind of medicine uh, and they drink it believing it's a medicine and they cure them. I don't know the name for that uh, idea. <laughs> oh, well, the technical name is placebo, but I think the real, name, the real name is love. Love, yes. So some, some stories can be a placebo as an art form that can break the dividing walls between people. Mamadou, why tell stories? In the past, telling story was a way was a way to bring people together in the village because every night, like the parents will call all the kids, put them together, and uh, tell them stories. And uh, and I think there's another way it's a way to bridge a gap between the past and the new generation because you gotta know exactly where you come from to be able to know where you're going and where you're at. Firuze? Well, stories reveal our shared humanity. And we need to be reminded of that, especially these days, because so often people just know other cultures through what they see on the evening news. And of course, only bad news is news. So we sometimes forget that people from other cultures are human just like us and and have the same sadnesses and joys. And as an Iranian, I feel it's very important to tell stories because most Americans just associate bearded men and hostages and pretty much that's about it when it comes to my native country. And for me, it's very important that people see that there's so much more and that there, there is so much shared humanity. So I really look at, at storytelling as an instrument of peace. Well, I wish we could keep on swapping stories, but unfortunately we're out of time. So I'd like to thank uh, all of our storytellers today for sharing the warmth of their stories and memories with Living on Earth. Yasir Shadli. Thank you and goodbye. Mm-hmm. Firuze Duma. Well, thank you for having me. And Mamadou and Sana Njai. Thank you for letting us be part of this. Thank you very much. Well, since Firuze didn't play any music for us today, we thought we'd leave you this week with the music and voice of a talented musician from her homeland. 
His name is Saeed Shambesadeh, and he plays traditional folk music from the southwestern coast of Iran, which blends the sounds from his Persian, African, and Arabic roots. His specialty is the Iranian bagpipe, or Nayamban. My name is Saeed Shambesadeh. I come from southwest of Iran, the small city called Boucher. In our city, we have a very cultural rich music and dance. You know, in the different ceremony, we use the music. In the funeral, in the wedding, in the, during the work. I re-adapt the ceremony on a stage. This music, it is it's coming from the people. I did not make it, this sound. It is the sound of the people. I am Ne Anban player, this is one kind of the backpipe, backpipe of South Iran. The Ne it is the material, it is the bamboo. And the Ne is say the true things. He can say the reality and uh, the people they can discover something if they listen to it. When we play, I try to be real and say the reality. And the reality of our quality is this, this music, literature, poesy, architecture. All of this, this is the reality of our nature. And I'm too happy to, to share this part of the, our reality to the world. Produced by the World Media Foundation. The producer for today's program was Mitra Taj. We had help today from Noel Flat, Tim Malone, and Tim Harris. Our technical director is Jeff Turton. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and join the conversation at our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening and happy holidays. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.